This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right, I think it's about time we let's bow our heads for a prayer as we start. Dear Lord, Thank you for a good night's rest. Thank you for the spiritual messages that you've been giving us, for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we're feeling already. And I just pray that on each of the seminars today, your spirit will be poured out. Lord, we wish we could all go to all of them, but we can't. And, and you've impressed some to be here, and I pray that it will be a blessing to them, that you will give us words to speak that will be an encouragement and a support and that will help to finish the work so that you can come. That's our great longing. Be with us now today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I've heard several people say, uh, miniskirts, mothers, and Muslims, is this only for women? No, it's not. Uh, it's, uh, it's, that's actually the title of a book that I'll tell you more about this afternoon. But it's about, it's about the culture. You know, there's a huge culture clash going on in our world today, and it's, it's probably greater than anything that's ever been experienced in the world before. Clash of various cultures. We, in this seminar, we're going to talk some about that. I'm going to tell a lot of stories and show a lot of pictures from MENA, the Middle East and North Africa. I want to talk about the work that we're doing there, the needs that we have there, about some of the amazing things that God is doing in a part of the world that we really haven't done much in as a church. In fact, it's probably the greatest frontier for missions that the church still faces is the Middle East and North Africa. We'll, we'll spend some time talking more about that. I want to talk in a general way about what God is doing around the world. The, we as a, as a movement have a goal. Uh, last night, Natasha mentioned to us the goal of the movement of GYC. What is it? to take the gospel to every person in our generation. That's really been the goal of the church ever since the early church. It hasn't happened yet, but we're praying it will. We need to look at why hasn't it happened, and we'll do that in, in some of these seminars. Do we really mean that? Do we really mean that we want to take the gospel to every person on earth? Do we? How many believe that's what we really mean? We, we really mean... Take it to every person. What about ISIS? What about if God gave you a dream a few months ago before Jihadi John was killed that you were supposed to go and, and share the gospel with him? Do we really believe that? That everybody needs a chance to hear the gospel? We... In these six sessions, I'm just going to give you a quick overview because in your, in your schedule, it just gives you titles. It doesn't give a description of each one. We're going to talk today, the one called Risk Takers. It's about safety and security because I guarantee you the first question in almost everybody's minds, for sure the first question in your family's minds, if you decided you wanted to come and help us in MENA, would be, oh, wait a minute. All the bombings, all the killings, all the terrorists, all the things that are going on over there. Well, we're going to talk some about safety and security. 
where is it okay to send missionaries? Is there some part of the world that we shouldn't send missionaries to? The second one this morning will be called Even Them. Are there people that we can't work for, or are there people that we shouldn't work for yet? I have people in churches many times that tell me there are parts of the world that God is going to have to win some other way. We shouldn't try to work for them. Number three, this afternoon, miniskirts, mothers, and Muslims, how can we take the gospel across the cultural divides that separate us? How can you reach out to your Muslim neighbor? Why is it we're not connecting very well with Muslims in this country or around the world? This will be a fun one, the one this afternoon. They'll all be challenging, I hope, but the one this afternoon will be a little bit fun as well. The last one this afternoon, approaching footsteps. Uh, Does everybody have to hear our Adventist message? Why is it that God raised up the Adventist movement anyway? Do we have a responsibility to share with everybody, or is it good enough if others are sharing with them? We're going to look at that some this afternoon. Then tomorrow, uh, the one is called Open Your Eyes. When will the Holy Spirit be poured out in places like the Middle East and North Africa? Or is it already being poured out and we just haven't opened our eyes to see it? And the last one on Sabbath afternoon, small beginnings. I know a lot of us would be willing to make a great sacrifice, maybe even give our life, if we thought in the process we could bring hundreds or thousands of people to Jesus. If we thought that we could go and preach a series of meetings and there would be hundreds of baptisms at the end of it, many of us would be willing to take a risk. What about if, if we knew that we were going to go and work our entire life, short or long, whatever it might be, and that we would die not seeing a single result for our works? Would we still be willing to make a sacrifice to do that? Today... I want to share with you a very personal and difficult experience to start the discussion of safety and security. I've called it risk takers. In a way, we're all risk takers, aren't we? But I want to share with you this this experience that, that Barbara and I went through. If I get this turned on here. It was April 30, 2005. I know some of you were just toddlers then. Others of you, that was just a few years ago. But April 30, 2005, we were in in Chattanooga, Tennessee at Southern. Our daughter-in-law, Shannon, had just graduated with her degree in social work there from Southern. And, And we were together with all of our kids, our son Homer, our son Terry, and our daughter Becky. It was, and some of our grandkids. It was, it was a wonderful time together at that graduation weekend. A week later, May 7, 2005, Barbara and I were out at, at the Middle East Fellowship meetings in California. There are more Adventist Middle Easterners living in California than there are in the Middle East. So it's a good place to go once in a while and connect with some of the folks there. We, we were sitting in a meeting, a wonderful time of sharing together. I see more people coming in, and there's still seats scattered throughout, and even a few in the front row if you can't find anything else. Um, We were sitting in a meeting, and somebody slipped in behind me and handed me this little pink note. It says, call your son 
or Beverly Warren and gave the phone number. Well, I said, I whispered to the guy that handed it to me, okay, when the meeting is finished, I'll go make the phone call. And he said, no, the voicemail sounded really urgent. You better come now. Well, that's not a kind of message you want to get. And we slipped out, shaking a little bit, wondering what was going on. Why did we need to make this urgent phone call? I called my son, and he answered the phone, Dad. He said, I don't know how to tell you this, but my brother, Terry, that's our middle son, Terry, has just been in a terrible accident in Tennessee, and they don't think he'll live till we can get there. Well, all night long, we flew from airport to airport trying to get to Chattanooga, Tennessee, so that we could go to Erlinger Hospital. Some of you know the Collegedale area where Terry was. We were thinking about our, our boys, our kids, as we did that. Homer Jr., working at Twixwood Nursery in Berrien Springs. Some of you know where that is. He, he works there. Uh, Becky, our daughter, Becky Munoz, she's a teacher. And Terry, Terry and Shannon. Terry had a master's in outdoor education. He was certified in high ropes courses. He was certified in nitrox scuba diving. He was certified in cave rescue. Anything to do with the outside, he loved it. He was just heavily involved in outdoor activities. He and Shannon did all kinds of things. He was a volunteer diver at the Tennessee Aquarium, you know, where kids would stand at the glass and watch. And he did anything he could to scare his mother. He, if we were on a walk, he, if he could get a scream out of her, that was wonderful. He loved life. He loved the out of doors. He's a master guide. They were heavily involved in Pathfinders. Lots of things going on in their lives. On May 7, that day, he had joined a group of 1,200 bike riders on a charity ride to go 100 miles. It was a beautiful day. He had a borrowed bike that was... Uh, an expensive bike that somebody had loaned him uh, for this ride. And, and at about 20 miles into it, the automatic cameras took these pictures. You can tell he was having a wonderful time. But about eight minutes later, nobody knows for sure what happened because he was alone on a corner. There were no other bicycles with him. As he, but about eight minutes later, he hit a car head on, going down the mountain, probably 50 miles an hour. They aren't sure because it destroyed the computer on the bike, so they don't know for sure how fast he was going. He, we don't know what happened, if he lost control or hit a slick spot or had a flat tire. The next year, in the same bicycle ride on the same corner, somebody threw a handful of carpet tacks out on the corner, and another rider was almost killed. So we don't know what happened. But as Terry, the next rider came around the corner, he saw that something had happened. He could see the car sitting there with the windshield gone and the driver just screaming through the windshield. And he could see Terry and his crumpled bike off on the side. And he, he was a paramedic. He jumped off to try to do something, but he thought there was no hope. The next three riders that came around were surgeons at Erlinger Hospital. In fact, one of them was a, a spinal surgeon who actually later operated on Terry, but at the time he thought there was no hope. When the helicopter came and airlifted him to Erlinger, they gave him an 8% chance of living. And that's when we got the call, saying, I don't think he'll live till you can get here. And all night long as I would land in an airport, I would pick up the phone and call, and they'd say, well, he's still alive, but we don't think he'll live till you can get here. The next day, finally about noon, 
we walked into the hospital and there was my boy. It was a difficult time. A couple of months that he was in a coma. At first, the first few days, we expected him to die. The doctors came to Shannon, his wife. We had an anointing service and everything, but the doctors came to Shannon and they said, you need to talk to your, to your in-laws because we think we're going to have to pull the plug. There's just nothing left that we can do for him. But he didn't die. And after about two weeks, the doctors said, well, maybe he's going to live, but he'll never regain mental ability. His back was totally broken. All of his ribs were crushed. His leg was broken in several places. His ear and head had severe injuries. They, they just said he'll never regain mental ability. So at that point, we were, Barbara and I were living in Cyprus, working in the Middle East. We loved it, but we decided we needed to leave and come back to the United States and help Shannon take care of Terry. So we went back to Cyprus, packed and sold our things, moved back to the U.S., and you can imagine the, the trauma going on in our own hearts. Well, little by little, Terry started to respond. It was slow. At first, we would say, Terry, can you, can you hear us? If you can hear us, raise your thumb. And once in a while, we'd see his hand shake, and we thought maybe his thumb came up a little bit. And the doctor said, well, it's probably just coincident, but keep trying. He might respond to family. Finally, he did it for a representative from Shepherd Center in Atlanta, which is one of the nation's biggest spinal and brain injury rehab centers. And so they said, we think we can work with him. And they took him down to Atlanta. That's his, Terry's first memory, is the ambulance ride to Atlanta. Um, he doesn't remember anything else about the accident or during that time, but little by little he started to recover. One day the doctor came into his room and said, uh, hey buddy, what's your name? And he said, uh, can't remember. He said, well, what's her name? And he pointed at Shannon. He, he says, uh, can't remember. He said, well, who is she? Oh, he said, she's my wife. <laughs> so he was, he was remembering some things, but not everything. This was his first meal. They had to teach him to chew and teach him to swallow again. And it was quite a while before they would let him have real food. And he only ate a couple bites of it. But he was thrilled and we were thrilled. Taught him to brush his teeth. He, one day, it took him half an hour probably to tell me what he really wanted. He said, Dad, you know, uh, book. Uh, uh, I said, writing? Yeah, write. Uh, child and he was trying to tell me he wanted one of those little books that you get in first or second grade you know where it teaches you how to make the letters kindergarten now i guess but it used to be we got them in first or second grade and and little by little he would say to me dad how do you spell well this day he was sitting here you can't read it but if you came up close you could he said dad how do you spell deer i said do you mean the kind that runs with antlers no no person he said I said, well, D-E-A-R. So he had to find the letters and copy them. And what he's written is, Dear Shannon, I love, you know what he's going to say, I love you. It was his first letter that he wrote. He was desperately wanting to learn to write again. This was his first Sabbath back in a church. The rehab center let him out to go to his church in Stanford Gap. And, and he loved it and they loved it. But life has changed totally for Terry. He now lives with a wheelchair. He's paralyzed from the waist down. He's alive. He loves God. He's active. I'll show you some of the things he's involved in. 
but he has to have a ramp for the house. He has to have somebody help to get him dressed. He, life has totally changed. He still loves the outdoors. We drag him up mountains uh, still. He loves mountains. We've broken several wheelchairs getting him <laughs> up places. He went back to the aquarium as a volunteer, but now not as a diver, as a tour guide. And here he's releasing butterflies, and the kids just love him because he's down on their level instead of being up tall like an adult. Back in Pathfinders again, actively involved. They go camping on the camperies. I don't even go camping anymore, but he and Shannon, they have a tent, and they go roll into the tent and get him on the cot, and, and they're out all the time. He has a hand bicycle that he's ridden up to 20 miles. I can hardly ride a regular bicycle 20 miles, but he's, he's been very involved. They went, this was 2010 general conference session. He was helping to coordinate the pathfinders that were collecting the offerings and came there. They fly all over different places. I love bird watching. Barbara and I love bird watching, and so do they. And, and so we've met them in different parts of the country. They even flew over to Lebanon to see us a couple of years ago and spent a couple of weeks with us. Here he's picking blueberries in Michigan and apples. He's been whitewater rafting, and you can tell that Shannon is terrified, but Terry's having a wonderful time. <laughs> uh, he's been water skiing. They have to strap him onto the skis. He can't, of course, stand up. He has no motion or feeling from the chest down. Uh, he's been scuba diving, but they do have to have a couple of other divers to watch his legs and make sure they don't scrape on things. And he's, and he's done quite a bit of that. One day, one of his friends went out to the, some of you know where that is, the, the cave in the park there near Southern. There's a little cliff, and one of his friends said, Terry, let's get your rope climbing gear on again and, and get you up the side of this cliff. And so they hoisted him up the side. One day, Terry emailed me, and he said, Dad, I found my motto. It's Psalm 118:17. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. You know, I, I want that to be my motto, too. Terry, Terry, they're up in Berrien Springs now. Shannon is teaching at Andrews. Uh, they're in the social work department. And, and Terry is a volunteer tour guide at the Archaeology Museum. He uh, works at the Samaritans, or I guess it's called Neighbor to Neighbor, and always involved in something, helping with pathfinders and just very involved. He wants people to know about Jesus. He, he took a risk that day when he got on the bicycle. But like us, we don't think about those risks much. I didn't think much about the risk of walking over here this morning. You know, we take a risk when we eat in a cafeteria or a restaurant, don't we? We take a risk when we buy a gift for our girlfriend or our wife that maybe they won't like it and we'll have to return it. You know, um, we, we take risks all the time, but we don't think about them usually. They're just part of everyday life. But there are some people that take risks on purpose, just for the thrill of the risk. Uh, I fly tens of thousands of miles every year, and I have no desire to jump out of an airplane. I'm fine to just stay in it. You know, the Middle East and North Africa Union is way, way bigger than the United States. It takes me longer to fly across it than it does to fly from Lebanon to here. It, it's a huge territory. But in those airplanes, I'm content to stay inside, and yet lots of people, for the fun of it, jump out of airplanes. Uh, there are other people that take, and there are all kinds of risks that people take for the fun of it, but there are others that take extreme risks. Extreme sports is, is very popular these days. 
You may have heard of people doing base jumping, jumping off a cliff and opening their parachute, or, or down in Mexico, they pay thousands of dollars to go jump into a cave and pull their parachute at just the right time. They have to count while they're falling, because if they pull the parachute too soon, it will, it will tear on the rocks up at the top. If they pull it too late, of course, that's a problem also. Uh, I've got a short little YouTube video of people doing that. Not for me. I, I'm, my brothers and I, we used to sometimes play tree tag when I was little, and I always lost because I was hanging onto the trunk of the tree everywhere we went. I, I couldn't move around much. There you can see the guy falling down. And then as they come, they pull their parachute and open it once they get down far enough. They're doing that just for the thrill, the excitement, the fun. And then there's another one called parachute chasing. They will stand in the door of the airplane and throw their parachute out of the door and then count and dive after it. And the purpose is to try to catch the parachute on the way down and put it on. <laughs> but I want to talk to you about peace and safety and security. You know, we take risks for the fun of it. We take risks for business. Do we take risks for Jesus? Are we willing to take risks for him? The first, whenever I'm trying to talk to people about coming to Mena, the first thing that they or their families will say to me is, but is it safe? And I need to talk with you a little bit about what it means to take risks for Jesus. You know, not everybody is looking for a risk just for danger. People ask me about being safe in Mena. Uh, where is it safe? You know, we could live in Paris or we could live in Loma Linda, California. Where is it safe? There's really no place safe, is there? 1 Thessalonians 5.3 says, For when they say peace and safety, then what? Sudden destruction comes upon them. Are we sometimes too worried about peace and safety? and maybe the sun destruction will come upon us. There's a, a passage in Amos that, that I think of many times, Amos 5, starting in 19, verse 19. It says it will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Uh, just a minute, I've got to get mine open here so I don't have to keep turning around all the time. Okay, it'll be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or as though he went into a house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Can you picture that scene with me for just a minute? Somebody is fleeing down the, down the path from a lion. It's, it's coming up behind him. He's terrified, and suddenly there in front of him is a bear standing up, and now you're caught between the lion and the bear. Which one is the better one to go join? But suddenly he sees a little cabin or shed off to the side and he rushes into it, slams the door in the face of the lion and the bear and collapses in relief against the wall only to be bitten by a snake that was hiding there in the darkness. You know, sometimes we feel like that in today's world. Is there any place that's safe? We're running from one danger and we come to another place and there's more danger there. 
the Bible says when we say or are looking for peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon us. These kids live in Cairo. They're part of one of our schools where we have, it's an Adventist school with about a thousand students, mostly Muslim, and almost no Adventist teachers because we don't have Adventists to teach in the schools. Do those kids need to hear the gospel? Is it safe in Egypt? Well, if you look at the news, you might be concerned. Mindy and Philip would tell you, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty safe. We go there in and out of there all the time. But that's not really the question, is it safe? The question is, do they need to hear the gospel? And if so, who's going to tell them? You know, if there was a fire and your little sister was inside the house, would you worry too much about whether it was safe or not? No, you'd rush in to get her, no matter what the risk. These are your brothers and sisters. They long to know what you know. They need to hear about Jesus as a loving Savior. But who's willing to go and tell them? So the real question is not, is it safe or not? But is that where God needs me to go or not? You know, I want to share with you a, a story that you're very familiar with about Elijah. In 1 Kings 19, verse 1, Jezebel threatens to kill Elijah by morning. You know the story well. We don't need to take time to read it all. Elijah begins to run for his life somewhere, anywhere. Why? To find a place of safety, wasn't it? She had threatened him. He was going to find some place where it was safe. And as the terrified prophet begins to run, a plan starts to take place in his mind. At first, I don't think he really knew where he was running. He was just running. He had to get away. He was terrified. But as he ran, he began to think, yes, I'll go to the mountain of God, to Mount Sinai. I'll go there where Moses was and the Israelites were. And, and as he climbed that peaceful mountain, and, and there are arguments about whether it's in Egypt or whether it's in Saudi Arabia. I don't know where the real one is, but, but wherever it was, Elijah knew where it was, and he was headed for that mountain. As he climbs that mountain, he finds the cave, probably the same one that, that Moses had stood in. And this is not Mount Sinai. This is actually a picture from down near Petra in Jordan. But I didn't have a good one of Mount Sinai, so I, I stuck this one in. But there's Elijah going into the cave, probably the same one that Moses had been in when he, said, when he asked God to pass by him so he could see his glory. And I can imagine the peace that rushed over Elijah as he got into that cave and sank to the ground in the coolness. He was out of the desert. He was finally safe. Probably for the first time in many nights, he slept soundly. But early in the morning, the Bible says a voice called out to him. It's in 1 Kings 19, starting, and I didn't put it on the screen, starting in verse 9, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, 1 Kings 19, verse 9. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They've torn down your altars. They've killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. What's he saying? He's saying, my life was in danger, God, and I'm the last prophet alive, and I had to come out here where it was safe. Verse 11, 
God says, go and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose. Some versions say they were broken in pieces, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Just picture it with me for a minute, if you will. The voice wakes him up. It's the voice of God, and it says, Well, good morning, Elijah. What brings you way out here to my mountain? And Elisha's been rehearsing for 40 days as he ran what he was going to say and why he was going out here. Oh, Lord. It's so good to find you out here on your mountain. You see, back in Israel, everybody's quit worshiping you. Not only that, they've killed all the prophets, and now they're trying to find me, and I escaped just in time. Finally, I'm out here with you. It's so good to be here with you, Lord, where it's safe. Can you almost hear God chuckling as he calls him out of the cave to stand out there? Safe, Elijah? Out here? Just step outside a minute and let me show you something. And as the prophet stood outside the cave, the wind hits him, splitting the rocks in pieces. This was a supernatural wind. There was nothing that he had ever seen like that before. I'm sure he stumbled back into the cave for safety. But what was the second thing that started happening? An earthquake, right? The ground starts to shake and the cracks are opening up in the cave and boulders are crashing down in front of it and, and Elijah, Elijah doesn't know whether to go outside and be crushed or stay inside and be buried. But before he can hardly even catch his breath, suddenly a fire is burning up the mountain. Now remember, it was, it's quite a barren mountain. But this is a fire like the one that burned the bush at the bottom of the mountain when Moses was there. It didn't need anything to burn. It was just roaring up the side of the mountain, and Elijah is in the back, plastered against the wall, trying to shield his face from the heat. He probably felt like a piece of Middle Eastern bread on the side of an oven, cooking inside the cave. After that, it was calm. Verse 12 says, and after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, so what did you say you're doing here, Elijah? And he starts all over again, verse 14, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty. And he goes through the same list of things. And I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. And I think as he finished saying it, it finally dawned on him how foolish that was. He had come out here to find safety, and God had just shown him that there is no place safe except where God sends you. Can I say that again? There is no place safe except where God sends you. If he sends you to Mena, if he sends you to Paris, if he sends you to San Bernardino, California, there is no place safe except where God sends you. Starting in verse 15, God gently tells his prophet, Okay, Elijah, now you're listening to me. I'm here with you. I was with you on Mount Carmel, and I will be with you wherever you go. And then he sent him back to Israel to commit treason. Told him to go and anoint a new king. Told him to go and anoint and prepare a new prophet. Both of those could have gotten him killed if Jezebel found out about it. 
But now he went without a whimper and did exactly what God wanted him to because he had learned the lesson. There is no place safe except where God sends you. Do you believe that? This is a mosque right across the road from Nile Union Academy. I don't know, they, do they still light it up at night? The, is, is it safe there in Egypt? If you watch the news, you might think it's not. But you know, I want to tell you, just by way of comparison, in the Washington, D.C. area, right around the General Conference, Washington, D.C. And, and Baltimore area, there are 6 to 12 murders a week. The news doesn't talk too much about them. 6 to 12 a week. There are parts of Washington, D.C. that you don't go walking in at night. It's not a safe place to be, and yet we don't evacuate the GC, but over and over the GC calls me up and says, should we evacuate you all from the Middle East? We evacuated a bunch of people from Egypt once and then sent them back in a couple of years ago, and the insurance companies and lawyers were furious that we sent them back in. But is it safe? Well, I don't know. We haven't had 12 people killed all year in Lebanon well, maybe we have now in the latest bombing, but, but we go months without having as many people as are killed every week in Washington, D.C. At our MENA booth, we've got a number of people there who, including some that are here with you, we, you're welcome to go and talk to them, some that are living right there in Egypt. I, I wanted to take a little bit of time and, and give a chance for some questions and answers. The main thing is that we need to know where is it that God has sent us. It is safe to go where he sends us. And then if there's time, I can always tell another story or two. But, but I wanted to see if there were some, some questions and answers before that I can... Uh, yeah, I'm not asking you for answers, although if you have answers, we'd love them. I'm wanting to see if you have some questions and we'll see if we can come up with some answers for them. You can always email us at info.adventismena.org. I have a few of my cards up here by the projector. You're welcome to take one of those. Uh, we'd be glad to talk with you. We're not trying to get you to come to Mena. God knows where he needs you to go. We just want everybody to be willing to go where God sends them, no matter what, because it's only safe to go where God sends you. Any questions? We've got a few minutes left. Yeah. Yes. She's asking, uh, I said there were not Adventist teachers. Who's teaching? We have, we actually have, let's see, two schools in Lebanon, two in Jordan, two in Egypt. Almost no Adventist teachers in any of them. They're mostly, there are a few Christian teachers, many Muslim teachers. It's simply an Adventist building with Adventist on the name, but no ad, not much Adventist influence on the students there. We have to have people that speak Arabic, or in some countries Turkish or Farsi or, or French, but, but we have to have people that speak Arabic to teach, and there just aren't enough Adventists prepared to teach. And I'll talk a little more later about some of the reasons for that. Many Christians have left the Middle East. Um, also, for generations, there's been animosity between Muslims and Christians. 
there's been a fear of each other. The Adventist Christians in most of our countries don't want anything to do with the Muslims. They, they're willing to do business with them, but they don't want to work with them spiritually. They're afraid of what would happen if they did. They just don't even think about it. If you go and ask them, what are you planning for outreach, they'll tell you some things they're planning, but they have nothing to do with reaching out to Muslims. In fact, they will try to stop you if you try to find something to do. And so there just hasn't been a big interest. We have very few Adventists there anyway. So out of that whole region, and I'll, I'll talk about this more in another talk, we have maybe 3,000 Adventists. There are more Adventists in the auditorium last night than we have in the entire Middle East, North Africa Union. 500 million people, way bigger than the United States. But we have almost no Adventists there, even if you count all of us foreigners. So we'll talk more, but we need people to start learning Arabic and Turkish and Farsi and French so that we can start placing them in schools and clinics and other things around the area. We, in most places, we would need them to speak Arabic if they're going to be able to touch the lives of the people there. Yes? Most useful language? Arabic is the biggest. About 300,000 people uh, speak Arabic in MENA. Then, then Turkish and Farsi each have about 75 million. Uh, French, there are a number of people in Lebanon and North Africa that speak French. So those are all valuable. Yes? Um, what is the determining factor that will allow us or me or my, like anyone here to take that risk? Like what, 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 what is that change? How does it look like? Um, because we can talk about taking the risk, but how do we get there? Mm -hmm. um, Elijah didn't just come because, come out of the cave just because. What? He knew because, uh, how, how do we determine okay. that? God's voice. He's asking, how do we determine that it's God's voice calling us to a place? And that's a very good question. Mrs. White says God leads three ways. He leads through the Word of God, through providential openings and closings, and through the impressions of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Word of God doesn't say, the Word of God says go. It says take the gospel to everybody, but it doesn't say whether that's downtown Louisville or whether that's downtown Beirut or, or where it would be. The Word of God gives us definite guidance and principles. I, one of our problems in the Middle East, we probably have a thousand or two thousand, quotes, Adventists working in Saudi Arabia. They come from all over the world, but they come for the money. We have hundreds of Adventist students in Morocco, in Algeria, in Turkey, in a number of universities coming from other countries to go to university there, but they come for the degree, not for the mission. And most of them are not faithful Adventists. Most of them are having problems with sexuality, they're having problems with Sabbath. They come and they work on Sabbath. They go to school and tests on Sabbath. The, the Word of God would give us some guidance on that, wouldn't it? If you had a job offer, and the job offer said, you're going to have to work every Saturday or every other Saturday, the Word of God would give you some guidance. It would say, no, don't. But otherwise, the Word of God isn't going to tell you which country to go to. The second thing is providential openings and closings. Is there an opportunity 
and we'll talk to you at our booth about opportunities. We have placed now about 70 what we call Waldensian students in universities in key places around our union. They're faithful Adventists. We've told them we don't care if you fail the classes because of not going on Sabbath. Our goal is to get you there to be a witness. So these are, these are young people who want a degree. They may be trying to get a degree in medicine or a degree in nursing, Bruno, or a degree in, uh, now there's Bruno back there. He's, he's from Brazil studying in Lebanon, studying nursing. You can talk to him at our booth if you want. Bruno, Bruno came to learn Arabic. And I have to tell you, Bruno has struggled with the Arabic, haven't you, Bruno? Been five years, six years? Arabic is a tough language. Some people, God gives the gift of tongues and they learn quickly, but other people, it's been a struggle. But you know, God has used that challenge that Bruno had as an added witness. But Bruno had some Sabbath problems. Many of our Waldensian students have Sabbath problems. And if you fail a class, your GPA goes down, doesn't it? So these young people that come are coming for the mission not for the degree. They know they might lose out on the degree, but that's not why they've come anyway. We're looking for tent makers. Mindy is going to be at the booth talking about tent makers, total employment, we call it. And we'll talk about that more another day. But we are looking for tent makers that we can place in various cities that will be faithful Adventists. Okay, so we have the first two. We, we have opportunities. You might have an opportunity to join us if you wanted. That could be a providential opening that you were here and came to this seminar. The third one is the impressions of the Holy Spirit. We're a little bit afraid of those, aren't we? We don't want to be Pentecostal. We don't want to just follow the impressions of our hearts, and that's good. We need to be careful. I had a man come to me once and he said, Pastor, the Holy Spirit is impressing me that I should meet, leave my wife and move in with this girl. And I said, no, that's not the Holy Spirit impressing you. Okay, the Holy Spirit will not contradict the Word of God. But when the Word of God and the providential openings and closings are not clear, maybe we have two or three opportunities to go and, and work for God and be faithful for Him. We need to listen to what our heart is saying. Where is it tugging? Has the Lord laid a burden on our heart for a particular country? You know, God will guide. I once had an old pastor. I was trying to make a decision, and an old pastor said to me, Homer, he said, sometimes you just have to make a decision and go. He said, Homer, he said, you're young. Do you like driving a car? And I said, yes. He said, which is easier to steer, a parked car or a moving car? I said, well, a moving car, much easier to steer. Back then, we didn't have power steering, and it was even more easier to steer a moving car than a parked one. But, but still, you know that feeling. He said, that's right, and the same with God. If you start moving ahead, you say, God, I'm willing, and I'm going to start going ahead, God can steer you in a different direction if he needs to. So be praying a lot, talking to people that, that you counsel with, and talk with us, look at opportunities. I often think of the Apostle Paul. It says that he wanted to go into Bithynia. He kept trying to knock on doors. He kept trying to go. And what did it say? It said the Holy Spirit stopped him. Now, I don't know how he did that. I'd like to know how did the Holy Spirit stop him. But the Holy Spirit kept stopping him from going into that part of Asia. 
that part of Turkey, really. And later, the Holy Spirit sent him to that very area, but at that time, it wasn't right. God had another place he needed him to go. Good question. We need to be thinking and praying and asking God's guidance and where we should go. Let me tell you one quick story. Let's see. What time am I supposed to quit? 9.45. Okay. One quick story, and then I'll take another hand back here. There, it's a combination of three short illustrations. There, there was a Brazilian veterinarian that was contacted by the Sheikh of Abu Dhabi to come and work for him taking care of his horses. He, he was a dedicated Adventist. He flew all over the world with that Sheikh buying and selling horses. He said there's a hospital in Abu Dhabi, right by the Abu Dhabi airport for horses that's nicer than any hospital most of you and I would ever get to go into. But he was dedicated and committed to doing what God asked him to do. There was a, a man from Mexico who was an interior designer for jet airplanes. The sheikh of one of the other emirates contacted him and said, I want you to come and work for me on my private fleet of jets, taking care of the interiors of them. And he said, I'm not interested in going. It kind of reminds me of the story of Balaam because the sheikh kept sending bigger and bigger delegations to see him and offering him more and more money. And he said, no, I'm, I'm not interested in coming. And they said, look, how much do you want to come? He said, I don't want to come. They said, well, Everybody has a price. What would we have to give you to get you to come? He said, well, I'm not coming because I know that the weekend is Thursday and Friday and the Sabbath, Saturday, is the first day of work, and I'm not going to work on Friday night or Saturday. Oh, they said, come. It'll be no problem. It'll, it'll no. He said, no, I want it written in my contract that I don't have to work Friday night and Saturday. They said, are you saying that if the sheikh wanted you at the last minute to take a quick flight with him on Saturday morning somewhere, you wouldn't do it? He said, that's exactly what I'm saying. Well, that's ridiculous, they said. He said, I know, that's why I won't come. <laughs> they, <clears throat> so they went back and started talking to the sheikh, and he sent them back with a bigger offer of money and a contract that said he didn't have to work on Friday night or Saturday. He flew all over with that sheikh on other days. That's the kind of people we're looking for who are willing to take great risks for God, but not willing to compromise on what they believe. All right, another hand back here. Yes? Could, what he's asking is, could one of the indicators of the will of God be where the greatest need is? Yes, I believe that could be. And there are huge needs. In another one of the seminars, I will talk with you about how big the need is in Mena. But that doesn't mean that God wants everybody to go to Mena. There are people here in Louisville that need to hear. There are people in Berrien Springs filled with Adventists that need to know. People in Loma Linda. Wherever God sends you is where you need to be. We, I just want you to be willing to take a risk for Jesus no matter what it is, whether it's a physical or emotional risk or whatever. Okay, any other questions or shall I tell another story? Yes? Mena is the, uh, sorry, I, I get rushing and I know what it means, so I think everybody else does. It's the Middle East and North Africa Union. 
I'll show a map of it in another one of the seminars that it was set up uh, four years ago. In fact, I think, what, two days ago? It's been four years since I moved there. So, yes, Middle East and North Africa Union. Any other questions? Yes. All right, good question, because Arabic, Arabic is, is, it's a massive language. It's very different from country to country. We've got, we've got some Algerian Adventists whose Arabic is quite different from the Egyptian Adventists. In fact, the Algerians can understand the Egyptians. The Egyptians have a lot of television programs and things, but the Egyptians often can't understand the Algerians. They tell me that it's almost like saying that uh, Spanish, Portuguese, French, and Italian are all one language. They're not. They're similar, but there are great differences between them. So which one do you learn? Well, there's a classical Arabic or a modern standard, standard Arabic that Rosetta Stone, <coughs> excuse me, Rosetta Stone and others use. And that's probably the best one. It's, it's the kind of Arabic that they use in writing and reading and newspaper and television. And people would understand you if you were using it. And you could quickly adapt to the Arabic that's around you. But it'll be quite different. Uh, for instance, in... in uh, Egypt, where modern standard Arabic is much closer to Egyptian Arabic than it is to Lebanese Arabic, for instance. In Egypt, I think you would usually say sabah al-her, for good morning. In Lebanon, they will often say sabaho. Okay, it's similar, but it's a different word. And, and uh, Lebanon, there's French is the second national language, and so they mix a lot of French into their Arabic, sometimes put French endings on an Arabic word, and it's like Spanglish or, or Taglish, Tagalog and English mixed together, or whatever it happens to be. But I would just say if, if you can use, if you're here, find what's available for you to study Arabic. If, it's, uh, if you have a local teacher, Learn what Arabic they have, and God will help use that in directing and where you go. You can pick up the other Arabic once you get there, but if you're going to buy a Rosetta Stone, you'll be getting the modern standard Arabic. Any other questions? Let me tell one more story, and then I'll come back to that. I think we'll still have time for that. We... Um, some of you might have heard this, a few of you might have heard this. We have a nurse from South Africa working in one of our countries. It's a closed country. Um, I know they're recording this and they're going to put it online, and so I'm trying to be a little bit careful what I say. I won't say the name of the country, but it, it's one of our big, difficult countries. This nurse recently had a, had a lady come up to her in the hospital and the lady said, oh, I finally found you. I've been looking all over the city for you. Do you remember me? Well, you know, nurses have lots of people that they interact with, and she didn't remember the lady. The lady said, well, do you remember him? And she pointed to a sweet little five-year-old boy, and the nurse said, no, I'm sorry. 
the lady said, well, five years ago, I brought him into the hospital as a baby, screaming. Okay, so I see some of you saying, yeah, you heard that. I've told it a few places. She, the baby was screaming constantly, and nobody could figure out what was wrong with him. They did all the tests, nothing seemed to be wrong, but he screamed constantly. Until one evening, our Adventist nurse picked him up and absentmindedly started humming to him like she did to her own kids. You know the song, right? Jesus loves me. Well, you're not supposed to do this in the country where she was. In, that, in the country where she is working, uh, women always have to wear a scarf and the, and the abaya, the, the full veil. Not, not full veil over their face, but they call the whole thing a veil. Uh, women are not allowed to drive. There's, if a woman wants to leave the country, she has to have her husband's sign permission to let her leave the country. Um, if Barbara and I were there, Barbara has to wear it. Uh, if, if Barbara wanted to leave the country without me, I'd have to sign to allow her to go. She couldn't go shopping by herself. I would have to go with her to go shop. Now, that might be a good idea. Have the men always have to go along shopping, but it's a difficult country. Our church is illegal there. They meet secretly, sort of. Uh, but, but in that country, she's, she's humming, Jesus loves me, to this baby. And he got quiet instantly. She, she was surprised. She stopped humming, and he started screaming. She started humming again, and he got quiet. For all night long, she carried him around, humming, Jesus loves me, to him. And he was quiet. The next night, when she came back on duty, the whole hospital was talking about it. They said, what did you do to get that baby to be quiet? Well, she didn't want to tell them what she did, because it would have been illegal. Finally, she picked the baby up and started humming again, and he got quiet again. Well, two more days or three went by, and the hospital was discharging them. They said, we can't do anything for this baby. He won't be quiet. We can't find anything wrong with him. And the mother came to our nurse just pleading with her. You've got to help me. Nobody else can keep this baby quiet except you. I don't know what I'm going to do when I go home. Would you sing that song into my cell phone? Well, now she was really afraid because the lady's husband was a policeman in that country. But she finally, after much begging, went in the back and fearfully sang, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And then she expected to be arrested. She was sure that as she, as she got home that night or as she came to the hospital the next day, the police would be there to arrest her. She had done what you're not supposed to do. But day after day went by, nothing happened. Month after month, she forgot all about them. Five years went by, and now here was this lady with a sweet little five-year-old boy and two other little kids. And the lady said, he is a wonderful boy, and it was because of your song that you sang for him that he's such a good little boy. But she said, I have a problem. I lost my cell phone. Would you sing it again into my new cell phone so I can play it for his little brother and sister? Well, she went in the back, and this was now probably two years ago. She went in the back and sang, Jesus loves me, and she sang, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world and gave it to the mother. You know, I don't know that we'll ever see that family in church, but I believe we will see some of them in heaven when Jesus comes. Because she was willing to go to a difficult country and take a risk, and that policeman's family for five years 
has been listening to a song about Jesus loving them and the Bible telling them. And at some point, that's going to click with them at just the right time. We just don't have Adventists in most of our places to meet with people, to sing to them, to share stories with them. Another question. Okay. He says it's, he understands it's illegal to bring people to Christ in many of these countries. Do we have an underground church? What, did, what do we do? Uh, yes, it is illegal in most of our countries to change religion any direction, although they don't enforce it if you're changing from Christianity to Islam. But, but the other way, they would enforce it. Uh, many times it's family that would, that would enforce it would kill somebody if, if that happened. Um, it's, some of our countries have lots of freedom. We have, we have open churches in, in some of our countries. In Tunisia, we have Adventists coming into our, uh, Muslims coming into our church to visit. In Turkey, it's quite open. Um, Algeria, it's quite open. Other countries, it's not. We have very open Adventist churches in Egypt and in Lebanon. But in those countries, a Muslim would rarely, if ever, come in. In fact, in Egypt, there's a policeman outside many of our churches, and he's there technically to protect us, but he's also there to make sure that the wrong people don't come into church. They make us put a cross on the front of the church. Whether you agree with that or not, if we have a, a Christian church in Egypt, we have to put a cross on the front. Why? To warn Muslims from coming in so that they'll know that it's not a place they should go. We have underground churches. We have secret churches. We have secret believers. We have some that are very open. And I'll tell you more stories about those over the next few seminars. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father God, you took a great risk when you came to live as a helpless baby here on earth with all the disease, with all the wars, but with the special attention of Satan trying everything he could to make sure that this did not succeed. And yet you came anyway, and you lived among us. And I pray that you will help each of us to be willing to take whatever risks you need us to take. Lord, you won't ask everybody to go. Some people you ask to stay. Others you ask to go. Whatever it is you ask us to do, may we do it faithfully not looking for our own honor and glory, not looking for excitement and adventure, but looking to finish the work so that Jesus can come. Lord, we're at the Jordan River. It's time for Jesus to come. You haven't asked us to figure out how to finish the work. You've just asked us to step in and get our feet wet, and then you will open up the river. And we see that happening in Mena and around the world. And we pray that soon you will finish the work and come in Jesus' name. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.